After a dark night, there's nothing quite like how the rising sun cheers your heart and illuminates the world in a way that you can navigate it. And I hope this morning, as we spend time letting the light shine, that you will bask in that light, that you will believe, that you will trust, that you will bow down and worship, that you will adore, that you will come to love Jesus even more. John's purpose was the same. Two millennia ago, he writes that he's making this record at the end of the first century so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. So we come to this Gospel of John to find the life that is in Jesus. We're only about halfway through that Gospel, and yet we've reached the last week of Christ's public ministry. His ministry is coming to its climax, and as we saw the last time, the hour had finally come for Him to be glorified in His saving mission the whole reason He came to earth, in His resurrection power, and in His fruitful death. All of these things prophesied for centuries by the Old Testament prophets, and then by John the Baptist, His forerunner, and then by Jesus Himself. And we noted actually a couple of weeks ago the importance of this part of Christ's life, His mission, focus. Uh, because of just the amount of time and, and space that John devotes to it. If all Jesus came to do was to give us a great example to follow as a compassionate and powerful teacher, then His dying on the cross has no purpose and makes no sense. If all Messiah was to do was to rule over an earthly kingdom, the cross becomes a scandal. It it disrupts the, the very reason that Jesus is here. And it really causes us to ask a question very similar to what the crowd will ask in our passage this morning. Was Jesus' death on the cross necessary at all? And the reality is that you can sample a lot of versions of so-called Christianity, and the cross can seem nothing more than an unnecessary tragedy. So we ask with the crowd in our passage this morning, why must Jesus, the Son of Man, die? And we want to discover the answer to that in our passage, John 12, 27 to 36. You want to look in your copy of the Scriptures. If you don't have a copy, there are copies there in the pew rack, and you can follow on the screen as well. Jesus says in verse 27 of John 12, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. 
Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show about why, what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that Christ, that is the Messiah, remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Jesus must die. He must die to glorify the Father's name, according to verses 27 and 28. He must die, secondly, to dethrone the ruler of this world, verses 29 to 33, and we want to explore what that means. And he must die, thirdly, to transform believers in him into sons of light, verses 34 to 36. Let's look at this first reality that Jesus must die to glorify the Father's name. Look at verse 27 again. Now, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. What Jesus knew he was about to undergo was horrific, physically, emotionally, spiritually. You can look just at the physical side of it, and it's literally excruciating. We get that word from the cross, excruciating pain. It was one of the most painful executions ever devised by man. And, and yet it was also horrific emotionally, just the sorrow of it. And you think of those that loved him, watching him die, and and, and the hopes being dashed to the ground of his being the promised Messiah. And then it was horrific spiritually because the perfect holy God, the Son, is bearing the sin of all the world and is separated from God, enduring the wrath of God as Father. He is fully God, sinless and powerful, but he is fully man, suffering all that human beings suffer, yet without sin, suffering what they deserve, not what he deserves. And so Jesus says that he is troubled. It means to be agitated or shaken or disturbed. It's, it's used in a literal sense of the angels troubling the water at the pool of Bethesda uh, where Jesus healed the invalid. It's used of Herod's reaction along with Jerusalem to the wise men's news of the newborn Christ child. All Jerusalem was troubled. It is used of the disciples' fearful response when they saw, thought they saw a phantom walking on the water of the stormy sea when Jesus came to him by not, them by night. And so Jesus has experienced this trauma because of what he knows he's about to go through. Despite the trauma, that he knew he'd have to endure, though, he is determined to go through with it. 
And the question is why. It really gets at our core question. Why must Jesus die? Why not withdraw as he's done before? Many times people, for a long time, people have tried to kill him and wanted to kill him, wanted to arrest him, and he would withdraw, sometimes even miraculously. Why not withdraw now? Why why is he marching, as it were, right into the teeth of the conflict, right into uh, the devastation of the cross? He is not helpless. He is not a victim of evil and powerful men. It's not just that they caught him finally and and he couldn't escape. He is deliberately moving toward the cross. In fact, he underscores this in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26. Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. One of the disciples trying to defend the Lord do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Thousands and thousands of angels are at my disposal. The Father can send them. If I want to escape this, I can escape it. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? The holy writings of God that promised that the Messiah would come, the promise that Messiah would die, and that the Messiah would rise again. How then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? He expresses this divine necessity this way in our text this morning. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What does he mean by that? Well, to glorify the Father's name is to reflect the shining splendor of the Father's revealed character. A name is um, not just a title, but it's, it's also the way people know you. Um, in fact, whatever your name is, if people have come to respect you and love you, they actually like the name. You know, have you ever noticed if you have, you know, you, you, you meet a person that has a particular name, but they're, they're a jerk? You're not going to name your kids after them. No way. Okay? You can't, you don't, I mean, nobody calls their daughter Jezebel, and I don't know that there's many that would call their sons Judas. Okay? The Father's name. Who is He? How does He want to be known? Who is God? And what is He like? And that, you know, that's the most relevant question there can be. If God exists, well, well, who is He? What is He like? And in all the turmoil of this world and all the struggles of my own heart, how do I know what God's actually like? Well, Jesus came to shine the light on who God actually is and what He's actually like. As we read the Scriptures, we find that God is full of steadfast love. He is utterly reliable and truthful. He is just and holy, yet great in mercy and willing to forgive. And when He makes a promise, He keeps it. Long ago, from the Garden of Eden onward, God promised a coming deliverer. He predicted through his prophets that the Messiah would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, our twistedness. The entire sacrificial system that God instituted through Moses pointed to the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. That's the way John the Baptist introduced Jesus in the first place. And he would do this through sacrifice of himself, an innocent life to make blood atonement, for guilty, many guilty lives. Paul sums it up this way in Romans 5, 8. God shows His love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died 
for us. God's loving commitment goes beyond the bounds. It reaches to rescue the worst of sinners and restore them to fellowship with himself. That is his character. That is his name. And how different that picture of God is from the picture that many would paint of God as some kind of of ogre, some kind of bully, some kind of control freak, some kind of person that, that delights to torture people. No, this is God. This is his character. What is God like? Well, look at Jesus in his life and look at Jesus in his death. And then look at Jesus in his resurrection. He is God revealed in the flesh. Jesus taught exactly what the Father wanted him to teach. Jesus did exactly what the Father wanted him to do. They were one in mind and one in action. And hence the Father's voice from heaven to strengthen the faith of the disciples. Just as the Father had voiced his approval at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and again at the Mount of Transfiguration, he now voices his approval once again. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. I have glorified it. John writes at the beginning of his gospel, we closely observed his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus, the Son, God the Son, shone out what the Father is like, the glory of the Father like no other person could do. We have seen it. We've closely observed it. And that glory was full of grace. And that glory is full of truth. We see God's glory as we watch Jesus at the wedding feast of Cana, turning water to wine, a gift of joy to a couple entering into marriage. We see the glory of God as Jesus cleanses the temple by driving out the money changers and the merchants who are making a business out of the worship of God. We see the glory of God as Jesus talks through the night with Nicodemus and points him to his need to be born again. We see the glory of God as Jesus sits at the well talking with the outcast Samaritan woman who begins to realize that this is the Messiah that God had promised. We see the glory of God as Jesus heals the nobleman's son. We see it as he, he, he looks at this man at the pool of Bethesda, paralyzed 38 years, and he says, take up your bed and walk. And he does it on the Sabbath day. He does it on purpose on the Sabbath day to show this is the way God works. This is the way God works. Religion is not about keeping your religious rules that you've added to the stuff that you say honors God. Religion, true religion, true worship, is doing things that God would do. It, it, it is shining out the character of God. The rescue of this man was far more important than man-made extrapolations of how to keep the fourth commandment properly. In fact, Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Ultimately, what he's saying is this. The reason I healed this lame man on the Sabbath day is because God wanted it done. God the Father works this way, and I do what the Father does. We see the glory of God as Jesus feeds the 5,000 weary, hungry men plus women and children with one boy's lunch. 
We see the glory of God as Jesus walked on water to rescue his disciples from the storm and teach them his authority over wild nature itself. We see the glory of God as Jesus then teaches, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, or before Abraham was, I am. We see the glory of God as Jesus stoops to write on the ground, as accusers of the woman caught in adultery are, are trying to trap him. He writes on the ground and then says, he who's without sin cast the first stone. And they withdrew one by one, starting with the oldest. What was Jesus saying about God? He was saying, God knows exactly who you are. And you can't fake it with him. You can't fake it by pointing at somebody else's sin. Humble repentance brings forgiveness from the God who actually exists. That is his name. You see the glory of God's name as Jesus interacts with the man born blind, not because of his own sin or his parents' sin, but to shine out the glory of God. You see the glory of God as Jesus portrays himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and whose sheep hear his voice and follow him. You see the glory of God as Jesus weeps at Lazarus' tomb, at the travesty of death, and then calls Lazarus forth from the dead. Jesus had displayed the Father's revealed character in stunning and clear ways. These are only a sample of all that he did in his three and a half years of ministry. I have glorified it. No truer words spoken. And I will glorify it again. God would glorify it again as Jesus equipped his disciples in the upper room for the ordeal they would undergo as he went to the cross. He would glorify the Father's name as he established the Lord's Supper and says, do this in remembrance of me. He would glorify the Father's name as he prayed to his Father before his disciples. I mean, think about it, hearing Jesus in his own words, in his own voice, interceding for you. He glorified the Father as he spoke, I am, before the mob that came to arrest them, knocking them to the ground. He glorified the Father as he endured the illegal nighttime trial, promising that he would come in the clouds of heaven as a son of man in great power and glory to judge the world. He glorified the Father as he confronted Pilate and Herod. He glorified the Father as he hung on the cross and gave John responsibility for his mother Mary. He glorified the Father as he died. And as he died, there came an earthquake and darkness and the temple curtains torn in two between the holy place and the holy of holies and people resurrected from the tombs. He glorified the Father when he rose from the dead. He glorified the Father when he ascended into heaven. And he glorifies the Father to this day as he intercedes for his own. And he will glorify the Father when he comes back to receive his own to himself. Jesus talks about this kind of relationship in John 17 as he prays. He begins that prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. A couple of years earlier, in his public teaching, Jesus spoke of his role as life giver and as judge at the end of the age in John 5, 20 to 23. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel, you may be amazed and astonished. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one. He has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus' glory and the Father's glory are inseparable. And Jesus glorified the Father throughout His earthly ministry. He continues to do so and will do so at the end of the age. And His death on the cross for our sins to make a way for us to be reconciled to God the Father is an intrinsic part of that glory because it fulfilled the Father's perfect will and displayed the Father's loving character. If you don't like Jesus, you don't like God. Because Jesus came to shine clearly who God is. And, and his whole ministry was about that, and it culminated in his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. So what does Jesus' suffering and death teach you about the Father's revealed character, his justice, his love, his reliability, his purposes, his heart toward you? You know, these are things that you and I need to meditate on because we so easily misrepresent God in our own thinking. This is God's name. This is what He's revealed Himself to be. Look at Jesus. Look at what He's done. And you will see who God the Father actually is. So, and how does that revealed character of God the Father give you hope and a reason to trust Him? I mean, there are things that happen to you in life. You're going like, where's God? Why didn't he come through? Okay, so are we just going to cancel all of this that he's done because there's something you don't understand? Really? Is, is that the way you treat your friends? There are plenty of things we don't understand. There are plenty of things that are painful and very difficult. But, but when we look at what God has revealed through Jesus, look at that character and let it give you hope and let it give you a reason to put the full weight of your trust on him, even in the times you, you don't understand. And in what ways does your response to what Jesus has revealed about the Father bring God glory or not do so? I mean, as we, as we meditate on who the Father is as Jesus has revealed him, how does that then translate into how I'm going to live life, the kind of comments I'm going to make, the, the way I'm going to treat other people, the, the way I'm going to cling to God in the dark times, and the way I'm going to pursue the things that, that Jesus would pursue, that God would want me to pursue, that, that show his compassion, his character, his, his loving loyalty, how can I display that? If I'm a believer, if I'm trusting in him, how can I, how can I let 
the glory of God shine out through my life so that other people are also pointed to Jesus and also pointed to God. There's a second reason Jesus must die, and that's to dethrone the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world has usurped that authority. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So not everybody picked out what the words were, but Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. It was to encourage the disciples. And then he says this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what what kind of death he was going to die. So when we see that word, the world, you know, sometimes we think of it as just like the spinning globe. We think of it uh, in, in, um, in terms of, of planets and that kind of thing. But the world here refers to that organized rebellion of the human race against God. And it's actually broader than the human race because Satan is, is leading this charge. It is energized by Satan himself, the ruler of this world. Paul says as much as he explains to the Ephesians and, and talks about what the way they once were, and, and they were really also into the occult, into the dark arts, magic, and uh, they were spiritual people, but they were the wrong side of the spirits, the evil spirits. But, but what he says is true of all people because he refers to it as true about himself. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once, in which you once walked. In other words, the way you lived your daily life, following the course of this world, the zeitgeist, the, the, the culture of the times, following the prince of the power of the air all the way around the globe, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the spirit that is energizing It's actually the word we get energy from. Those whose very nature is to disobey God. So it's not just that I'm a sinner by birth and by choice. It's that before I come to Jesus, Satan himself like supercharges that rebellion against God. He he takes advantage of my sin nature and, and, and like... You know, if you have a fire going and you take the billows and force more area and you make the fire hotter, he makes the fire hotter. He makes my sin even greater. Among whom, the sons of disobedience, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And that's not just the body, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So I can have an anti-God, hostile attitude toward God, self-centered, appetite-driven way of living life, and I did. And we're by nature children of wrath. Not only by nature sons of disobedience, but by nature children of wrath because those who disobey God, rebel against God, are subject to the wrath of God. And so it's my very nature to deserve God's wrath like the rest of mankind. And Satan, the prince of the power of the air, is energizing that. He is at work just as he was at work in the garden when he starts off, did God really say that? Like, you've got to be kidding. Did God really say that? And then he boldly denies it, and then he says, the only reason God said that is he doesn't want you to be as strong and powerful as he is. 
He lied about God's character. And he's been talking that way ever since. He's been energizing that spirit ever since. And that's why John himself will say in his first epistle, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, like a baby resting in the arms of his mother. Only when you look at the mother's face, you see the scowl of Satan himself. I've got you. You're like a babe in my arms. That's Satan. And that's why in Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, back at the beginning of his ministry, he offered him the kingdoms of the world according to Luke 4. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us Satan's at work in blinding people to the gospel. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. On the night that Jesus was arrested, he would declare, John 14.30, I will no longer talk much with you. This is in the upper room. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. What does that mean? Well, that means that, as we know from elsewhere, Satan filled the heart of Judas to betray the Lord. Satan moved the chief priests and temple officers and elders to seize Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke says as much in Luke 22. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. A huge irony. And it's actually, it's almost... It's tragic, but it's humorous. Satan's schemes backfire. He became a pawn in the Father's hand to bring about the redemption through Jesus, just as God had planned from before the foundation of the earth. Acts 2.23, Peter is preaching. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I mean, you talk about justice gone crazy. You talk about destruction of the innocent. You talk about cruelty. You talk about unmitigated evil. And yet, God is so much in control, he actually takes the work of Satan and the work of evil men crucifying the Son of God to accomplish what he had decided to do before the world existed. It's good to remember that when you start fretting about powerful people who are evil. Satan inspired the conspiracy to crucify Jesus, but Jesus willingly laid down his life to break Satan's power over human beings. Through the blood of Christ, the sins of those who believe are forgiven and cleansed. Satan's accusations avail nothing against them. They have been declared righteous by the judge of all the universe, God himself. And where sin is purged, it no longer can enslave. Those who have been granted eternal life, furthermore, no longer fear death. Hebrews 2 puts it this way. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, Likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, render him inoperable, that is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Through his death on the cross, Christ Jesus broke Satan's iron grip over humanity. Jesus had to die to get it done, and he rose again to ratify his victory. People all over the world have suffered under the tyranny of Satan ever since the Garden of Eden. And at the cross, Jesus broke that tyranny. For people all over the world will trust him to save him, and that's exactly what he'll do. He'll draw all people from every nation, kindred, and tongue to himself and deliver them from the power of darkness. The prince of the power of the air, just as the atmosphere envelops the globe, so Satan's power envelops the globe. That power is broken through Jesus. Jesus will draw people to himself from every point on the planet to himself. He has delivered us, Paul says in Colossians, from the domain, the kingdom of darkness, and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. We've been ransomed, the forgiveness of sins. Satan, an angelic being, is a formidable opponent, far greater than we are. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, the rulers of this present darkness. They're world rulers. But Jesus broke that power. But to do it, he had to die. So as you look around you today, where do you see the tyrannical power of Satan over the world system of our day? I mean, you see it right and left. You see the blindness of people. You see, you're sometimes just absolutely astonished how cruel and wicked people can be. And what areas of your own life show Satan's power over you instead of God's? It's easy to see the sins of others, but what about your own life? And if you are trusting in Jesus, I should comment on that. You know, Jesus said, whoever you obey, you're a slave to. So if you're obeying your sinful passions, you're a slave to your sinful passions. You're, you're, you're listening to Satan instead of the God. So if you are trusting in Jesus, in what areas of your life do you see freedom from this world and freedom from the evil ruler of this world? You know, your, your life ought to show that beautiful freedom. Not perfectly, we're in process, but it ought to be clear that you are no longer Satan's lackey. You're no longer uh, sin's slave. You now serve Jesus, and it's glorious. The third thing that leads us to this third reality is that Jesus had to die to transform believers in him. See, the freedom that we need is not just a freedom from the ultimate judgment of God. We, we need freedom from the way sin tyrannizes us now, from the way Satan tends to dominate us now. We need freedom from that now. Well, how do you do that when, it's, when we have a sin nature that it, it's all the way inside? How, do you, how, do you, how are you free from that? Well, you have to be transformed from the inside out, and that's what Jesus talks about. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ, the Messiah, remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? 
Well, the crowd knows some of what the Old Testament teaches about the coming Messiah, and they correctly connect the Son of Man title with the Messiah. But they can't figure out how the Messiah can reign forever and yet be lifted up on a cross to die. It's the grand paradox of the Old Testament prophecies. How is it possible, they ask? Who is the Son of Man you're talking about? Because the Son of Man we know about is the Messiah. The Son of Man we know about comes in the clouds of heaven with the Ancient of Days and judges all the kingdoms and rules an everlasting kingdom and it lasts forever. What Son of Man are you talking about? And one of the striking things of this passage is Jesus doesn't answer their question. In fact, I found that extremely frustrating as I was trying to prepare this. It's like, okay, uh, they're asking this question. Now, what does Jesus say? He doesn't answer the question. I can, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I'd be in the crowd going, answer the question, answer the question. He doesn't answer the question. And it's not that there's no explanation. It's that it was, it, it wasn't time yet for it to be revealed how it all fit together. They didn't need to know how to solve the theological riddle. They just needed to trust Jesus on the basis of what He had already revealed in His words and in His works. You don't have to know every theological paradox. You don't, you don't have to have the answers to everything. Have you looked at Jesus? Have you seen what He says? Have, have you listened to what he says? Have you seen what he's done? What are you going to do with that? You're never going to answer all the questions. But what has been revealed, what are you doing with that? I mean, there is an answer. Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, in other words, in transforming people, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For, for Jesus to do his work completely, he had to die. For Jesus to change who human beings are, he had to die. But this problem of solving the theological riddles is always the problem. God's not explained everything to us about how all he's promised will fit together. Hence the debates about eschatology. It will be clear someday when it's fulfilled, but He has revealed enough for you to believe in Him. That was the case with the crowd that day. That is the case today. Your being able to figure it all out is not yours to demand. Believe what's been revealed while you still can. The rest will be made clear in time. By the way, why would God show you more if you won't believe what He's already showed you? I mean, what's the point of that? What has He shown you, and are you leaning into that? So Jesus answers them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Like, you know, the day ending and you're walking a road, you need the light. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus has said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Tragic words indeed. When you believe the light, the light changes you. 
Your own character is transformed from darkness to light. That is why Christ died and rose again, not just to clear you from the condemnation of your sin, but to give you life, to change you into an image bearer of God that God created you to be. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, live your daily life as children of light. What does that look like? Well, the fruit of light... This is what light produces is found in all that's good and right and true. But if you do not lean into the light when you have it, instead of becoming light, you will be overtaken by darkness. Believe in what has been revealed. Don't resist what you do know for the sake of what you don't yet understand. That's rejecting the light, and that leaves you to the power of darkness. So delay is deadly. You may think you have all the time in the world to make your choice, but you don't. Chances are this particular group of people, all the individuals in it on this day and this hour will never again, every one of them, meet together in this place. More than once, people that were here on Sunday or on Wednesday were gone a day later. Believe while you have the light to do so. Because if you don't, you are choosing the darkness. What are you doing with the light you have? Jesus frequently gave this warning back in John 7. Jesus said, I will be with you a little while longer than I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me. You will not find me where I am. You cannot come. In John 8, 21, he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me. You will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. You know, our problem is we've never known what it's like not to be alive. It's the only experience we have. We just assume things are going to rock along. And, and many of you have been exposed to the truth of the gospel for years now. You've literally heard thousands of sermons. You've been presented light. But some, some still delay. Some are still saying, but, but what about this? But what about that? Forget that. You'll never answer all the questions. What has been revealed to you? Lean into that and trust it. So in what ways has God given you light? Think of all the ways God has shined light into your life. And in what areas are you resisting the light you have because of what you can't figure out? Of course, we've got other reasons for resisting the light too. I resist the light that I have because there's things I want to do that the light won't let me do. What are your excuses for delaying trusting in Jesus as he's been revealed to you? I know many of you have trusted him, but some of you haven't. Why? I mean, of all the people on the planet and all the history of the world, if you've sat in any number of services here and you're not trusting in Jesus, there is no excuse, absolutely none, that you have before God because the light shines I mean, do you really think this is a wise policy when Jesus so sternly warns against it? 
Jesus himself. I mean, you don't have to listen to me. Listen to Jesus. What are you going to do with him? Jesus, Jesus came to glorify the Father's name to show you who God is like. And he did so. He did it perfectly. And Jesus came to dethrone the ruler of this world. There's no reason that Satan should dominate your life any longer. No longer. It doesn't matter where you've come from because people all over the world are trusting in Jesus and are being delivered. And Jesus came to transform believers in him. He will change you too. Stop trying to do it on your own. It won't work. Jesus must die to do these things. And Jesus did die. And he rose again. And he completed the work the Father gave him to do. And Jesus has fulfilled the very words that he spoke on this day. Let us glorify him. Let's pray. Father, help us believe and help that belief in you as we Attach ourselves to who you are. Lord, let it transform us. You will transform us. And God, help us in our struggles. We struggle all the time. We struggle with the questions. We struggle with the pain. We, we're like the crowd that's here, but God, help us cling to what Jesus has revealed to us about who you are and what, you, how, what your heart is toward us. And help us trust. Help us trust while we have light before the darkness comes. Of course, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.